Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our boring old solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Andrew Rushby, and as always, I'm joined by Hugh Osborne and Hannah Wakeford. This month on Exocast 46B, we are privileged to be talking with Moya McTeer, astrophysicist, folklorist, and science communicator about the exciting work that she does. Also, feel free to check out this month's other two episodes, Exocast 46C, where we go back to basics to ask the question, what exactly is the habitable zone? And if you have a hankering for the latest exoplanet news but don't want to troll the archive or ADS yourself, don't worry, we have you covered. Check out Exocast 46D for the latest and greatest exoplanetary happenings. But that's enough from me. Uh, let's kick off Exocast 46B uh, by introducing another pioneering exoplanet researcher. So over to you. This month we're joined by Moy McTeer, an NSF graduate research fellow in the Cool Worlds Lab at the University of Columbia in New York. Welcome to the show, Moya. Thanks for having me. It's so good to be here. Excellent. Well, you have a wide range of astronomical interests, but I thought we'd, we'd start asking you about a very cool paper that, that I read recently that you wrote about um, using the exoplanet transit method. And actually, we talked about it recently when we were talking about detecting com- continents and surface features on exocast, mm-hmm. um, because you took that one step forward and we're talking about potentially detecting topology, right? Mountains. Yeah. So so how does that work? How, how, what, was, what was your research there? Yeah, that was my first project in graduate school uh, that I worked on in my first year. It was really fun. Uh, And it was my advisor, David Kipping, is the head of the Cool Worlds Lab. And he's known for having these kind of wacky ideas. He does exomoons. And just like, true to David's brand, he approached me and asked, what could we do to find mountains on exoplanets? And so then I spent a year working on that. Um, So the transit method works by staring at a patch of sky and measuring how much light you get from that patch. And if a planet passes in front of a star in that patch of sky, then it's going to block some of that star's light. So you'll actually be able to measure a dip in the amount of light you get. Uh, But the cool thing about that transit, the amount of light that gets blocked, is that it depends on the area of the planet. Uh, And so if a planet has surface features and it's rotating in front of the star, then its shape, its silhouette will change. And that means that it'll have a different area area over time. So it will be blocking different amounts of light from the star. Uh, And if you are looking at a transit light curve, you'll see these little bumps, this tiny amount of scatter at the bottom of the light curve. And my method of finding uh, mountains on exoplanets looks at how much scatter a planet uh, is creating in the light curve and then kind of reverse engineers that to figure out how mountainous or bumpy a planet should be. What, What kind of order of magnitude are those changes? (laughs) <laughs> oh, they are tiny. Uh, I mean, so even I mean, detecting a planet in front of a star is magical. It's like yeah. a miracle that we can even do that. And <laughs> mountains are so small. I mean, they feel really big when you're standing next to one. But if you took Earth and you shrank it down to the size of a billiard ball, uh, it would be smoother than a billiard ball, uh, because all of the mountains are just so small compared to the size of Earth. And so even in the best case scenario where you have a, a mountainous planet in front of a very small star, like a, a late M dwarf type of star mm-hmm. that's maybe 10% the size of the sun, these signals would be maybe one part per million. And it just gets worse as the star gets bigger because the planet is then blocking a smaller proportion of the star's light. 
how much time do you need? So you said you're looking at the rotation modulation, essentially, of these mm-hmm. mountains as they rotate in and out of the area that you're measuring. Does that also then require a long transit duration and a fast rotating planet? That makes it easier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but because we're looking at planets ideally orbiting small stars, they're not going to have a long transit duration. Uh, because there's just less star to pass in front of. Uh, and so there's a delicate balance that we have to strike between, well, how big do we want the star to be and how fast do we want the planet to be moving uh, that we kind of glossed over in the paper because we were mm-hmm. trying to just get a very simple first approach to this type of problem. Right. Uh, but I, yeah, my answer to you, I guess, is I don't really know. Uh, <laughs> that's something that hopefully Neither someone else I. can figure out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, would would this technique also work? I mean, on Earth, humans have this need to build tall things, right? <laughs> Buildings and and structures. You know, would that would this technique work? And would you find cities this way? Oh, that'd be so dope! Yeah, yeah, that'd be really cool. Uh, if you had a really really flat planet, otherwise, uh, but you had a, a civilization there that just was able to build really tall things. I'm picturing what's the tallest building on Earth? It's like that that hotel in Dubai, maybe or like yeah, I think it's, it's a kilometer or something, right? Yeah, um, but so that, that stands out on its own because the rest of it isn't built up so you'd need like this very distinct varying height yeah. so that you could get that change in area right exactly well, that's yeah, a world so- that you should build <laughs> i want to i want to hear that podcast a very flat world yeah i'd love that because flat the, world the with just depends- random tall buildings that you can detect <laughs> yeah um because the method depends on finding like on average how much do features vary from the kind of median radius of the planet. Right. And so if the most of the planet is very flat, but you have these stick out features, uh, then that would that would be great to detect. So could you go the other way and look for like negative relief, like valleys mm. and, you know, that 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 side of the, the equation instead of stuff that's sticking up stuff that's missing missing from the ground i guess right, right. <laughs> Lines. um unfortunately no i mean if if it's big enough uh, i mean the earth isn't perfectly round obviously it has mountains so it's not perfectly spherical but there are even if you take away the mountains like there are some places in earth that look like they've just been like punched in uh and so we could detect those these very large trenches if you took away all of the oceans we might be able to detect the marianas trench for example uh but small deviations these small mm. valleys that like you encounter in your everyday life we probably wouldn't be able to able to detect those what i mean the th- what about like clouds would the, would clouds get in the way because obviously those are the biggest those mm-hmm. are bigger structures the mountains in some ways clouds right? always cause trouble we always <laughs> yeah. talk about the difficulties of clouds in some shape or form yeah. clouds are the best um I agree. Clouds are pretty awesome, uh, but they do cause trouble sometimes. The cool thing about clouds, though, is that they would look different if you're observing in different wavelengths. So as long as you have uh, multiple wavelengths for your observation, uh, you could see that in some wavelengths, the planet appears bumpier. And that's a good indication that there's something like a cloud that's opaque to some wavelengths, but transparent to others uh, getting in your way. Right, so we discussed the uh, the kind of importance of the the planet to star ratio in terms of its detection, um, but in terms of like different planet sizes, would maybe a bigger planet have taller mountains, a smaller planet have smaller mountains? Is there like a planet size mountain size relation that we could we could use here? Yeah, we I think 
We didn't really get too into this into the paper, but there definitely is something like that. And it has to do with the surface gravity of a planet. So um, because there is some relationship between size of a planet and its mass, uh, there's also a relationship between size of a planet and its surface gravity. Uh, and the general rule of thumb is that the stronger gravity is on a planet, the shorter mountains will be because you just can't build up structures that tall. Sure. And I guess the angle or the angle of repose will be kind of different. Yeah. I'm thinking like Olympus Mons, right? Yeah. Which is huge and on a tiny planet. So I guess it's just a little, because of the surface gravity, it's a little easier to get that, that structure. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. So when we discussed uh, imaging exoplanets, I think we agreed that you might be able to detect surface features, you know, continents within 15 years with the next generation of telescopes. Mm-hmm. Are we talking about that generation or is this kind of going to happen in 50 years or 100 years what's the time frame uh it's definitely possible in the next 15 years with the next generation of telescopes like um the the magellan telescope and like the 30 meter class uh telescopes oh wow uh if they get built depending on where they are um but it'll just get easier and we'll have a better chance of detecting these types of mountains once we have the truly massive telescopes, like the overwhelmingly large telescope or Colossus. <laughs> uh, and I think now we're just, we're, like, we don't even have funding for, or like, I say yeah. we, I'm not a member of those <laughs> <laughs> uh, organizations, uh, but like, people are still trying to get funding for those telescopes. So that that's, that's definitely a long way off. So another aspect that you kind of have worked on is, is, the galactic structure of stars, right? So, um, and also tying that to exoplanet occurrence rates. So mm-hmm. firstly, what, why do some stars move faster than others? And what does that tell us? Yeah, uh, so our galaxy is a really big place uh, and it has a lot of different parts to it. So in the middle, there's the galactic bulge, which is this kind of spherical chaos monster uh, of stars and gas and dust where uh, stars are moving really quickly and they're uh, really close to each other and they're not moving on predictable orbits. And then around that, we have the disk of the galaxy. And I like to think of the disk as like a pancake because um, it's it's relatively thin, especially compared to how wide it is. And all of the stars and fun stuff in the disk of the galaxy are like blueberries in a pancake. Um, and when you're thinking about the disk and how things move through the disk, because it's so thin, you can almost approximate it as a two-dimensional region. Uh, so things aren't being disturbed uh, by gravitational forces from stuff above or below them, for the most part. Their motion is dominated by the mass of stuff that's uh, like in their same plane. And that means in the pancake. In the pancake. Yes, thank you. Uh, I forgot my own metaphor. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that means that in the disk, things are moving according to mostly Keplerian motion. And so you can easily calculate how fast stuff is moving. And uh, as long as you understand like how dark matter is distributed, you can just calculate how fast stuff uh, is moving based on how far away it is from the center of the galaxy. So the general rule of thumb is that uh, the further away you move from the center of the galaxy, the slower stars are, except if like, if you actually look at the rotation curve, because there's dark matter, that's not totally true. But that's what Keplerian motion would say. So, so um, you looked at this in respect to the Kepler field, is that right? I so, did. So how does, with it, that's kind of one small region of sky. So I would have thought most of the stars there are moving together in some way. 
Is that not the case? They are. Uh, so this project was trying to figure out if faster stars are more or less likely to have planets. And I thought that they'd be less likely to have planets, maybe because they uh, experience ram pressure stripping, where they're just moving so fast that like the pressure of the gas and stuff around them pulls the planets away, uh, or maybe because they have encounters with other stars more often. Uh, but I was looking in the Kepler field, which is in the solar neighborhood, and so there's not much of a variance in how fast the stars are moving. Also, because we're in the disk, we're not moving that fast to begin with. The sun is moving around the galaxy at only about uh, 240 kilometers per second, which is... Only. only yeah, it's fast <laughs> for us, but like for a star in space, like that's, that's boring. I like to say we're in the suburbs of the galaxy. Uh, not much is going on here. Um, and so... Knowing now what I know about the Kepler field and how the dynamics of the Milky Way actually work out, I was not that surprised to find that uh, star the speed of stars in the Kepler field just doesn't say much about it, the star's ability to host planets. I think I, I remember reading as well that um, the older a star is, the faster it is. So, I mean, I guess there's a link there as well, right? Old stars might have fewer planets if planets over time tend to like chaotically collide and stuff but right yeah um, so the older a star is the more time it's had to become what we call dynamically heated uh so through repeated interactions either with other stars or with dense regions in the galaxy like the spiral arms or with resonances from things like the bar at the center of the galaxy uh they just get perturbed further and further from their original circular orbits so they'll move up and down in the galaxy and have uh just like more energy so they they'll move faster you recently published some work that showed that 8 out of 10 stars in the Milky Way bulge have had some kind of stellar encounter in the past. How would these kinds of encounters affect any planets that might be around them? And do we expect to be able to find planets in the, in the bulge of our galaxy? Mm -hmm. Great question. I absolutely loved working on this project. It was so fun. Um, so the short answer is that the planets around a star, if that star experiences a close encounter with another star, could get stripped away from their stars. Uh, their orbits could be destabilized. So maybe immediately after the encounter, they don't experience anything drastic. But a million years later, uh, their orbit has changed enough that they get flung out of the system, or maybe they get flung into the star, which would be super bad. Uh, you, you definitely can't survive that. Uh, or if the encounter happens early enough, it can totally interrupt the planet formation process altogether. Together, at least in the outer parts of the solar system. Uh, that's the short answer, believe it or not. The longer answer is that it really depends on so many different factors, like the mass of the stars involved, where the planets actually are, like what, what phase of their orbits they're in, and, and how far away they are from their stars when the encounter happens. Even the speed of the stars during the encounter will determine how long the encounter lasts. Uh, and the longer the encounter lasts, the more time gravity has to work on the planet. So it would just make the consequences more extreme. So there's just there's just a lot of stuff to consider. Um, and I think that m my co-authors and I very wisely stopped the project before we got into <laughs> all of the hairy details of what could happen to the planets. Yeah, there's a hole you can dig yourself down into when you yeah. enter that kind of parameter space. You're like, okay, what about this? Oh, what about this? What about this? Exactly. 
Has that happened with our solar system? Do you know that in an encounter like that? Yeah, uh, I to- I forget the exact like time scales, but something like within a million years, a million and a half years, a star is expected to come within uh, a thousand AU of the sun, and like going backwards it's possible that a star came within like several thousand au of the sun uh within the last several million years um so those i mean clearly we're still here so it wasn't that catastrophic um but the types of encounters that i'm talking about in the bulge are much closer together and does that deal with much larger stars as well? Because the the stars in our neighborhood are mostly M stars, these small things that are much smaller than the sun. In the bulge, mm-hmm. do we expect much larger stars or is there still that dominant distribution of M stars? I think in the bulge, we actually expect a, a more bottom-heavy distribution of stellar masses because the bulge is older. Uh, there have been more generations of star formation and mm-hmm. the one the stars that are left over are the smaller low-mass stars. So there will be more M stars. Nice. I didn't know that. I don't know. I don't know anything about the galactic bulge. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah. Learning a lot. Me too. <laughs> In the course of these projects, I've learned so much. <laughs> I think part of that is because whenever uh, someone talked about the galactic bulge in one of my astronomy classes, I immediately stopped paying attention because I was giggling too hard. So I never learned anything <laughs> in my classes and I had to relearn it when I was doing the projects. You always learn so much more when you have to approach a problem as going, okay, let's pretend I'm a blank slate and <laughs> see where we can go with this. Yeah. Is, is there a reason you think that we don't live in the galactic bulge, that we're out in the suburbs, as you call it? <laughs> is that what's what's the limit? What's the kind of problem with habit, habitability in, in mm-hmm. that kind of region? Yeah. Uh, well, the search for a quote unquote galactic habitable zone has been going on since the 70s and people have taken different approaches. I have taken a dynamics approach just because it's only in the last few years that we have the type of precise and accurate data of how stars are moving in other parts of the galaxy where we can do this type of work. Uh, but other people have taken a, more of a metallicity approach, a chemical approach, like looking at how the element elemental abundances trend throughout the galaxy. Other people have looked at supernova rates and uh, radiation amounts throughout the galaxy. Um, and most of us have come to the same conclusion that the bulge probably isn't a great place for life. Um, and when you kind of pair when you combine all of the different galactic habitable zone work that's been done, it looks like the best place for life in the galaxy is this kind of annular region of the of the disk between seven and nine kiloparsecs from the center of the galaxy. And for those of you who aren't in the know, our sun, our solar system, sits at eight kiloparsecs from the center of the galaxy. So we're smack dab in the middle of this galactic habitable zone, uh, and we're not in a spiral arm. Uh, so spiral arms are much denser than other parts of the disk, so they, they have higher amounts of radiation, um, there's more of an opportunity, there are more opportunities for these close stellar encounters. Uh, and so we're eight kiloparsecs away. We're not in a spiral arm. We're not in some sort of weird resonance pattern with the bar at the center of the solar system. It seems like we probably are in the galactic habitable zone, according to all of the people who have studied this before <laughs> me who are like, you know, much smarter than I am because they've yeah. devoted their entire careers to it instead of just three years. <laughs> Well, I didn't realize we were quite that 
perfect in terms of distance. That's that's impro- that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Lots of um, things for so- Andrew to add to his models. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I was actually there's actually um, some news that was coming out this month that that we might discuss later. That was basically speaking to this that metallicity uh, uh, relation in which some researchers found that that very same thing mm-hmm. uh, in terms of let's think about the stars and more about the planets and the ability to generate a magnetic dynamo and how that might drop off as Ooh. the kind of metallicity enrichment of the galaxy goes down. But the caveat being that. It's not actually peer-reviewed yet, so we're mm-hmm. not too sure about whether we should discuss it in the news yet. Right. It doesn't fit our bar. But again, it's one of the another another you know uh, arrow in the quiver, I guess, <laughs> to to support that hypothesis that you know we there's a, there's a temporal element here that I'm always been really interested mm. in, like temporal habitability when when we are as opposed to you know just just where we are. Right. And uh, this is yet and just another really interesting, fascinating aspect to that the astrophysical temporal nature of things yeah. as well as the planetary side really cool stuff i remember seeing a paper from avi Loeb a few years ago that looked at this kind of temporal approach to habitability and found that uh, uh maybe heartbreakingly but also unsurprisingly that this is the perfect time <laughs> for life um so both in time and space we're we're just where we really need to be to exist which hopefully isn't just a coincidence. <laughs> hopefully not. Lucky for us, e- either way. Yeah. So um, I feel like we can't have the world's only astrophysicist slash folklorist on the program <laughs> and not talk a little bit about mythology and folklore. Yes. So, um, so do you want to tell us about that? Like, like how you're combining astronomy and, and, and mythology and, and how you came to, 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 to do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I started studying both of them in college. And if I'm being totally honest, I was never interested in astronomy growing up, but I was very interested in folklore. Um, although I didn't really understand that either of them were th- real things that you could study professionally. And when I got to college, I found both of them by chance by following my stomach. Um, I, I studied astronomy because someone offered me free pizza, and I studied folklore <laughs> because someone offered me free cake. Um, oh, literally your stomach. I thought it was like a gut feeling. Oh, no. <laughs> I literally stomach. mean, like, I was, I was a poor college student, and I was hungry, and I was going to all of the feeling. free events. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, any astronomers listening that are looking for grad students, get pizza exactly. and bring them in. <laughs> yes. Um, 100%. At, like best advice I could give. Um, <laughs> so that's how I found it. And over the, the time, it's now, that was in 2014. It's now six years later, I've found different ways to combine them. Uh, for my undergraduate thesis, I wrote a science fiction novel that was set on an exoplanet that I studied. And the the plot of the novel was based on some ethnography work that I did in Hawaii around like the Hawaiian sovereignty movement and the 30 meter telescope conflict. Um, that was really fun. Since then, uh, I've started a PhD program in astronomy. And so I don't get the chance to formally study folklore much anymore, but I still read a lot. Uh, and I am an expert in building fictional worlds. That was my special focus in folklore in college. And so since then, I've been teaching workshops about how people can uh, use science to kind of inspire their creativity. Um, and I take people through world building exercises that has morphed into so many different forms, the latest of which is a podcast that I host called ExoLore uh, that's all about facts-based fictional world building. And so I, I build up cultures and life forms on different alien planets 
So is is I, what's the definition of folklore? Is it specific to kind of cult, different cultures having different kind of shared mythologies, or is it kind of more generally creative writing kind of brief? It's super broad. Um, <laughs> I I haven't yet found a definition of folklore that I find totally satisfying to be honest. Uh, but in general, it's the study of culture in different around the world at different times. And culture is also really broad. Um, it's, it's, it's not quite the same thing as anthropology. It's not quite the same thing as archaeology. Um, so the, the folklore that I have most experience with is the study of the stories that people in different cultures tell. Um, and stories are universal. Uh, as humans, our brains are hardwired to use stories to learn things, to be entertained, to uh, transmit information for survival. And so uh, every culture has their stories and there are some overlaps. Like uh, It's pretty uh, guaranteed that no matter what culture you study, you're going to find stories or mythologies about the sun and about moons. Uh, or about the moon. Um, but there are th- also some things that are specific to different cultures, and folklore is the study of like those things, uh, which is really cool. But there, there's just so much under that umbrella that uh, everyone can focus on something different. I found it interesting that you mentioned at the beginning that, that aspect of time as well with folklore, and how mm-hmm. time has this this effect on the stories that we tell. When you're looking at the science fiction, you're building these worlds, how do you kind of fold in the aspect of time in those because we know that's a big thing in the habitability or the presence of planets absolutely uh it's really uh difficult because in (laughs) each xlr episode i have an hour uh to build up a whole world and worlds have millions of species they exist for billions of years there's no way that i can cover all of that breadth in one episode and so i really have to kind of cherry pick what i focus on uh but i try to get some uh some semblance of like a a time lapse in each episode by talking about the biology and how evolution can change over time and talking about culture and like as as technology advances as maybe random uh natural events occur, uh, how would that change the stories that people tell or like the way that they live their lives over time? And so in a lot of episodes, it ends up being uh, discussions about myths that people would tell about the natural world around them. That's what uh, a lot of myths are used for, like to explain natural phenomena, uh, like why do eclipses happen or what is thunder? That's why Thor exists. Um, and over time, as people develop science and have just like their understanding of the world around them changes, that creates different myths and rituals and stories. And so uh, I ask about the myths before science happens. And then I, I ask about technological advances and what that would do to culture. And that that gets at a time element. Does this kind of folklore um, interest give you any perspectives on your astronomical like academic interests is there is there some way that it you get better right you get ideas um that kind of reflect off this this side uh yeah i think they definitely bounce back and forth between each other uh i work on 
I study exoplanets and I think about exoplanets in a galactic context instead of just looking, not just, I'm not trying to say anything bad about people who do this, but like instead of looking at the Kepler catalog, which is very close to uh, our part of the galaxy, uh, I look at, I think about what planets might be like in the galactic bulge and thinking about all of these different types of exoplanets that could exist lead me to thinking about what culture on those different types of exoplanets might be like. Uh, and so they they kind of inform each other in that way. So the microlensing surveys from the Roman Space Telescope are going to really help with trying to map <laughs> planets throughout our galaxy. Uh, are you excited for, for new surveys like that? I am, but... Uh, Unfortunately, these surveys aren't going to give us the types of details about these planets that I need to do my world building work. Uh, I, I have done episodes of Exolore in the past where I start by saying, all right, this planet is just like 60% the size of Earth. What would that do? And that's the type of thing that we can get from these types of surveys. Um, I really need more details about what the atmosphere is like and how many stars does it have and what are the surface features does it have water um those are you just can't get that from these types of large surveys so from like a, a practical sense i often feel like when we're when we're all writing papers in a way we are telling we're telling a story it's telling a story of our research right and my advisor always used to say you know that the science finishes at the point where you finish discussing your results mm -hmm. you know the discussion that's philosophy that's that's the storytelling element. So do you feel like when I was re actually reading your paper about uh, uh, about the topology, I noticed you used certain phrases like grand circle and, and stuff like that. It seemed from much more evocative in terms of a lot of the dry science that's out there. <laughs> do you feel like that that storytelling, world building element also helps the like practical application of writing the story of your science as well? Huh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, for noticing. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I really hope that my background in storytelling makes me a better communicator. And I don't want to be a like a dynamic communicator in person when I'm speaking and then a very dry communicator when I'm writing. Uh, and so I have had some interactions with my advisor when we're working on a paper together where he thinks that the language I use is too colloquial sometimes. Yeah. Of or, course, there's, you know, conventions and, right. and stuff that we kind of bound by. Yeah. Um, and I, when, when I see a reason for it, like to kind of break convention, if I think that it's, if there's a better way to communicate something, uh, and stories are all about finding better ways to communicate. So I think there's definitely an interplay there. Do you think that astronomers, because obviously a lot of the stars in the sky are named for specific mythological things, but astronomers in, in our field, we don't care or know about this. <laughs> do you think that, do you think that, all astronomers should kind of have a better appreciation of the, of the the cultural folklore that goes into the stories on the night in the night sky. Yes, if only because that would then give them a better way of connecting with people who aren't astronomers, which I think is really important. Uh, I I've, I get the impression that astronomy has a better relationship with the public than a lot of other sciences. We have these really pretty pictures. Uh, I think that you'd be hard pressed to find a person in the US who hasn't heard of NASA. Uh, but I have no idea what the equivalent of NASA in like, oh, like biology is. Is it the NIH? Like, I have, I have no idea. Yeah. Um, I'd say the only other thing that gets close is the USGS, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think that astronomers do a pretty good job of relating to the public, but it would 
be a lot better if we had this shared lexicon of mythology and culture that the stories surrounding stars and the mythical names that we've given them would provide. If I could just um, follow on from that, I would I would really like to incorporate more kind of local, even non-local, like astronomical knowledge into my papers and presentations. But I'm aware that it does seem, you know, I'm often a visitor in a place. You know, I've, mm. been, I've lived in several countries. I don't feel like I'm I'm really a resident there. And I'm concerned about, you know, appropriating local knowledge for my own needs or at least the uh, the appearance of that is there some way that we can just be a little bit more sensitive to that but also try and speak to the the, the folklorish aspect of this which i think is important yeah i think the easiest way to do that is to listen like ask people ask people uh, if you're visiting a place and you find a way to connect with people who are native to that space listen to them listen to the stories that they've told listen to what they actually want uh, a lot of tokenization happens because someone gets this idea in their head of oh i'm going to like highlight a like a native or black astronomer or i'm going to like tell their stories myself without really doing the work to figure out how this group wants their stories to be told or if they want them to be told at all and just listening to what people want and how they want their culture to be represented goes a huge way a long way uh, and it's not something that uh, people think to do good advice for general life yeah as well, <laughs> Angela, <I think>. yeah. <laughs> listen <laughs> yeah be patient and yeah yeah uh, but there are also uh, people who study this, um, trying to reach out to archaeoastronomers uh, like Jurita Holbrook, who does a lot of work in South Africa, combining the cultural heritage of places with the ast astronomical study that has been done there. Because people have been looking up at the night sky and observing it for as long as there have been people. Uh, so teaming up with them and paying attention to their work uh, can also help. That, that's a good point to move on to something I wanted to talk with you about. And that's, well, basically how underrepresented our field is in terms of people of colour and ethnicities. Um, and our, this Exocast team is actually a, a no, annoyingly close representation to astronomy, given that it's, you know, 66% male and 100% white. Um, so I was, I was wondering, could you tell us a bit about your experiences as a woman of colour in academia? Yeah, um... There have been some great experiences and there have been some pretty heart-wrenching experiences. Um, I, I really don't have the words to explain how hard it is to walk into a room or to walk into a conference knowing that, I, or without seeing someone who looks like me and knowing that I probably won't be able to see someone who looks like me. Uh, also, when I do see someone who looks like me and then I find out they're a jerk, like that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was one, one of the hardest things about being a, a black person in astronomy is that there aren't many of us. And it would be really great to be able to relate to someone based on shared experiences that we have. Not that like, I'm sure we all have on this call, we all have shared experiences too. Um, but when things like um, the protests start happening and you really want to talk to someone about it. Like I would want to talk a, to another black astronomer, but because there are so few of us, like you're limited in your options for friends. Because <laughs> um, not all black people get along. And so that, that's a tricky thing. Um, an, another difficult thing is knowing that there are people who have power uh, in my department at the head of AAS or NASA who uh, either like don't understand 
what like how difficult it is or like the different obstacles that have been placed uh systemically in society uh, for people like me uh or they don't care uh or and so i i think that there are very few people right now working in academia who are actively trying to keep black people out but there are a lot of people who just don't see that there are problems and they don't care to see it because like they've lived so long without it affecting them and without having people around them talk about it um so that really hurts how do you think um how do you see a future in astronomy like moving towards a more kind of equitable um inclusive kind of subject are there things that we can do to you know each, each each and every astronomer does something what what kind of things can we can we do to improve it? Yeah. Um, being careful about who you work with, uh, while also like not falling into the whole tokenizing thing. Um, there's, there's like no reason these days for a paper to have seven authors who are all men, but like it still happens. Um, there's no reason for, like if you go to a double AS conference and you're sitting in uh, one of those really difficult to sit through like l- lightning talk series where they have like 10 five minute talks in a row without breaks, um, it shouldn't be 10 dudes in a row. Um, so things like that, just like being careful, like being cognizant of who you're inviting to participate in different things. Um I know a lot of people talk about the leaky pipeline and a lot of people really hate the term leaky pipeline, but it's the term we have. So it's the term I'm going to use, uh, even though it's not ideal. And the thing that a lot of diversity programs fail to mention is that people are interested in this stuff. Uh, when I go to talk to students in Harlem or the Bronx, there are like hundreds of kids in those classrooms who are black and brown and are really interested in physics and astronomy. Uh, it's just that when they get to different parts of the, like the career ladder, when they get to undergrad or when they get to grad school, they're faced with, op- with obstacles that force them to leave. Um, so I'm in or grad school right now. So leave. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm in grad school right now. So most of my ideas are about that particular rung of the career ladder, but simple things like not using the physics GRE or the GRE uh, in your admissions practices, making sure that there are uh, black people and women and like making sure that your admissions committee isn't all white dudes or um, simple thing of like paying people. Like why are there unpaid internships? Why do grad students not get paid before they move to a new city to start grad school? that that's these these things aren't maybe aren't things that departments have had to think about before because these needs not everyone who has had easy access to academia needed these things Mm -hmm. but if we want to make sure that everyone has easy access to academia we have to make sure that they don't have these types of obstacles in their way and once they're in, we need to create a space where they want to stay, where it's yeah. a, a good place to be. I think that's the one big thing that's going to be them. It's going to require all of us because that, mm-hmm. that is, that is common amongst everyone that 
sometimes not a nice place to be. And we need to make sure that this is a space that people want to be working. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we, I feel like we're so lucky in a field, especially like exoplanets, where there's so many people that want to come into this field. You know, like if you're searching for postdocs or or or, or grad students, you've got a, a massive range of people that you that want to go to this institution and learn about this thing. Mm-hmm. So you clearly you have a selection where you can make sure that you are um, reflecting the diversity of society and in yet what the who you choose. Still right? get in. Yeah. 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 Sorry. It's I think been it one does help days. that. <laughs> Fair. Um, I think it helps that exoplanet as exoplanets as a field is a lot younger than other subfields yeah. of astronomy. Um, and part of that, I think, is a runaway effect where there were young people who got very big in the field, like David or Andrew Vanderberg or Sarah Seeger. And people saw these young, cool people who were open minded and just flocked to them. And then like more and more young people from different backgrounds decided to study exoplanets because that's where the safe people were. Um, and if we could create more subfields where there was an influx of young people studying those things, then we could have similar runaway effects in other aspects of, in other subfields of astronomy. I think there's a lot of structural changes that need to be made, and we need to start working on them 10 years ago. <laughs> so uh, I'm very glad to see a long list of institutions getting rid of these exams for grad school. Yes. And, and there's a number of different ways that we can do stuff. So we'll share on our website a couple of the links to, to the lists that we have been going around on Twitter. And also uh, for for those listening, go back and look at the hashtag Black in Astro. That's been running mm. all uh, the week and it's got some amazing stuff on there. So please go and look at those. Yeah, and, and, and generally black in the ivory yes. as well for just general academic stuff. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was going to say. Exocast. We should adopt a planet, I think. Yes, so there's one one last thing to do, um, Moya, and that is to hear which planet you have decided to adopt yes. into our adopted planet list. Um, so I, I have a whole system of planets that I think is really cool, okay. but I, I can choose a specific planet in that system. <laughs> it would just be a random choice. Uh, so the, the system is Kepler 90, which I love because mm. it's like the little twin to our own solar system. Uh, it might be the only uh, or maybe one of like two uh, exoplanetary systems we found with eight planets detected. Uh, and it orbits uh, the system orbits a star, a G-type star, very much like our sun. Uh, the only difference is that the system is tiny. The entire system can fit within, uh, definitely within Mars's orbit. And I think the, the f- outermost planet orbits at around 1 AU. Um, so there aren't any habitable planets in the system because the outermost planet is a, is a gas giant, but um, it's pretty cool. If I had to pick my favorite, maybe... Uh, I, Kepler-90i, um, it was the last planet detected uh, using machine learning going through the Kepler catalog, but I think it's the third planet from the star, uh, and it's it's just Weird. a little bit bigger than Earth, but it's it's very close to the to the sun, so def- almost definitely not habitable according to our traditional criteria. Is it the only I? I mean, Trappist has one H, right? Seven yeah. planets. Yeah. I think this might be the only I in the catalogue, right? Yeah, I think that this is the only nice. system that has eight planets, which is why Amazing. I like it so much. 
Oh, well, I, like, I like adding 90i to the list then, if it's going to be the only i that goes in there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Thanks again for joining us, Moya. It's been great to have you on. Um, don't forget to look out for about other two episodes this month where we ask what exactly is the habitable zone and where we round up this month's news. Um, you can also get in touch with us to let us know your thoughts on this show and all about others on at exo underscore cast on Twitter or on our Facebook page. And if you're not already, you should go follow Moya on Twitter at GoAstroMo and listen to her podcast uh, ExoLaw on Anchor. As always, you can find all of our other episodes on our website, exocast.org, or on iTunes, Spotify, and any good podcasting app. But for now, thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne, the Test K-Ops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern and Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Thanks for listening. Exocast. I have exoplanets.